We're starting today the letters uh, for the seven churches in our study of Revelation. Uh, and it's good to re- remind ourselves right up front that Revelation isn't written for somebody else. It's not written for the first church. It's not written for the church at the end of time. It's a pastoral letter that's written to all of the churches and the same issues that the first churches struggled with. These seven churches in Asia Minor that were real churches in the first century, uh, as you read them and you study them, it's almost uncanny uh, how similar their problems were to our problems. And so uh, these letters are written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There were way more churches than just seven, but in Revelation, seven is the number of fullness. And so in that, uh, Jesus is saying, that these are letters to all the churches. In fact, he says that at the end of each letter. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So let's uh, let's all stand if you're able and let's listen uh, to what Jesus the King, our Lord, the great physician, the healer of our souls, says to his churches. Amen. Let's listen now intently to God's inerrant word. This is, we're going to read... From, we're going to read the stories of two churches, and I'll tell you why they fit together a little bit later. First, we're going to read the church of Ephesus, and then we're going to read the letter to the church of Laodicea, the very first letter and the very last letter. So here we go. First, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is God's inerrant word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And yet this I have, let this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church of Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, in, our, in our premarital uh, counseling that we do, we, we use a book by Tim Keller called Meaning of Marriage. And in this book, he tells a story of when he was diagnosed, when he was diagnosed by the doctor of thyroid cancer. And he says that, you know, in the, in the context of the story, he says that the doctor, he found a lump in his throat. And then after he found that lump, he went through all kinds of hardship and difficulty and surgery uh, to remove that lump, and it was a ton of trouble. But in the book, he says, he says, even though it was hard, and even though it was a, a bad news and a terrible diagnosis, never once did I ever think to myself, man, I'm glad my doctor never found that lump. Well, what does he mean? What he means is, he's, even though it was hard, and even though it was difficult, he was so glad that that doctor was able to properly to find that lump and properly diagnose the cancer so that he could go through the difficult treatment of curing it. Uh, and so, first, first thing I want us all to, just to remember and think on before we start dissecting these letters is, is that Jesus, the King, as we talked about last week, our high priest and high judge of the church and the world is saying some terribly difficult things about the church in these, in these letters. Man, words that will just sting, and they're terribly, terribly difficult. Um, so before we say anything, um, we need to remember that Jesus loves his church, and that this is, these are letters that are written to people that he has redeemed by his blood. And so it's not, this is not Jesus despising or talking down to his church. This is Jesus loving his churches by properly diagnosing the various cancers that live within them so that he, as the great physician, can heal us, even though that healing process may be really difficult. So before we even go on, let me just, man, reassure you, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves his church. Uh, And as you hear these things from me, know I love you. (laughs) And that I am preaching to myself first in all the things that uh, Jesus has to say to us. Uh, Second, let's remember that Jesus is speaking to churches and not to individuals. It's real easy for us to think Uh, in our American individualism to think individual Christians in these cases, but that's not what's happening. Jesus is talking to churches, and the big issue at stake, the big problem, is that church's witness in the world. That church is, um, in one way or another, in various ways, the cancers have affected these churches uh, in ways that their ability to be faithful witnesses to the gospel in the world has been uh, compromised. It's destroying the ability of the churches to carry out the mission. They may be doing other things very well, but the one thing that we are called to do, the mission of the church, is being, uh, is being greatly compromised. And that is evangelism, and to make disciples, uh, and to make disciples who are able to evangelize in a repeating process. Uh, and third... 
We're going to talk a lot more about the situation of the churches in Asia Minor as we go along in the letters, but the short form, the short form of what they faced uh, and what we face, what the churches throughout the history of the church has faced, are the three things that we talked about last week, the three prongs of Satan's battle plan against the church. First, Satan uses state and cultural pressure to cause fear in his churches, to, make, to, cause a, uh, to fear and to pressure us to conform to the values and to what the world worship is. Second, Satan introduces false teachers into the world to present with us, sometimes subtly, it seems to us, subtle compromised versions of the faith uh, that we can then accept. Uh, and then the third prong is to present uh, reward for doing, for accepting those compromises, to present uh, the reward of social acceptance, material reward for adopting that compromise. And so the three big attacks the church faces is fear, uh, which pressures us to compromise, which then destroys the witness of the church in the world, and then the reward for that compromise on the backside. Now when we think uh, as American Christians, mostly when we think about persecution, we almost think entirely in terms of the first kind of persecution. State power, uh, taking away rights, or uh, cultural pressure, or losing prominence in the society so that we lose our ability to work or to have the careers we want or live in the comfort that we want. Uh, and that's because as Americans who are mostly under the second and third types of persecution, the very worst thing that we can imagine happening to us is losing our compromised versions of the faith, faith or worse, uh, the social rewards that we get from it. However, neither of these churches seem to be under very much state-sponsored persecution. They are either under internal pressure from heresy or they're from the external pressure from wealth and prosperity that surrounds the church, a reward that's offered that they, it makes it so easy for them to drift away. And yet, both of these churches have something in common, and that's why they're put together. But first, I want to start with, let's look at first, let's go from the back to the forward. First, let's look at the Laodicean church, because the Laodiceans are the church that everyone loves to hate. Let's look at first, uh, the Laodicean Christian Fellowship megachurch. Uh, Laodicea was a, was a fantastically wealthy and prosperous city. They were a city that was, that was rich with banking enterprises. They had a medical college that produced, uh, uh, ironically, eye salve that would help people's vision to see, which is the reason why Jesus uses that analogy. They also had textile Industries. They were so wealthy that in 60 AD, when an earthquake devastated uh, most of the cities in Asia Minor, every, every, almost every city appealed to Rome for like federal assistance to help rebuild. But Laodicea was so wealthy, they didn't need any help. They just rebuilt their city on their own wealth. And so that tells us something about them. They were a very wealthy church. The one thing that they didn't have was drinkable water. Laodicea was in a, in a valley with three other 
two other cities, the city of Colossae uh, and the city of Heriopolis. Colossae had cool mountain spring water that was thought to be medicinal, that would run into, uh, that they had access to for drinking. And Heriopolis had hot mineral springs, which were also thought to be medicinal. Uh, and so, uh, uh, but Laodicea, Laodicea had the Lycus River, which was a shallow river that wound through the valley and mixed with white mud and silt and was warm. And by the time it got to Laodicea, if you would drink it, it would literally make you nauseous because it was so bad. In fact, one of the old, some of the older versions of this passage were more forceful. It would say, Jesus would say to them, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth picking up on that image. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that something has happened to the Laodicean Christian fellowship that has made them lose uh, the refreshment of living water that they're supposed to be in the world. Uh, they're not like the cool mountain stream or they're not like the hot mineral water, both that are good, but they're like the gross, muddy silt that makes people sick. What was it that happened to them? Well, the short answer is that they were so wealthy and so prosperous uh, that Jesus and the church, although it was important to them, it wasn't urgent to them. They had so many other things that could bring comfort or bring satisfaction or bring entertainment or, or bring comfort in the world that the church, everyone would probably say, yeah, it's really important, but it just wasn't in the first place. It drifted into second, maybe third, maybe fourth place behind all these other things that people could immediately find comfort and distraction in. Uh, and, the, here's, and the slow drift of putting all these other things first um, was that what happens is that the things that are really important, the things that are really comfortable, the things that we really look to to provide us comfort in this world that are meaningful to us, that we put in the first place, in other words, that we assign the most worth to, which is a way of saying worship, uh, when those things become other things, real, there's a slow drift where the worship of the church and the life of the church and the things that we do start to look a whole lot more like the things we worship than what the Bible calls us to worship, what the Bible says is important. And so before you know it, worship services become look, they look more like worldly entertainment and sermons reflect more the values and the felt needs of the culture rather than informing us and, and lighting our minds on fire with the beauty of Christ and his compromise and his, his, his sacrifice for us. When the church becomes more about being a good person and relying on Jesus' goodness for us, it becomes more about feeling good about ourselves than mistrusting ourselves and trusting in Jesus. And it becomes more of really God's there, but he's only there on demand. We call him in when we need him, but we don't really need him all the time. We just need a little help once in a while. There's this great line from Jerry Andrews at First Press that says, if all we need is a little help, that that means Jesus is a little helper. 
enough a blasphemous thing to say. And so here the big problem in the Laodicean church is that they have totally lost their ability to witness to the world because the witness that they are presenting to the world has become just a pale reflection of the world itself. And Jesus says, that makes people vomit. There's nothing medicinal. There's nothing refreshing. There's nothing helpful or good about that. And the, and the, and the scary part is when he tells them that, he says, he says, you don't even know this is what happens. That's what's happened to you. The drift into it has been so slow, no one even really understands what's happened. We are, my kids and I have started reading together Chronicles of Narnia. So we went through a season of illustrations from Harry Potter, a season of illustrations from Lord of the Rings. Now we're going to enter into the third age of Resprez, which is <laughs> illustrations from the Chronicles of Narnia. In, this, in the first book, there's the character, the kids, Diggory and Polly, have these magic rings that transport them to this place called the Wood Between the Worlds. And the wood between the worlds is a place that's so peaceful, it, it's, it just subdues your mind uh, into, into lethargy to where you, they, 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 they find themselves in this world and they just stare at each other for the longest time. And really all they want to do is just kind of lay down and relax and sleep. In fact, they don't even really recognize one another. There's a, there's a pale recognition they think they've known each other in the past, but they're really not quite sure. Almost like they are anesthetized. Almost like they've been drugged. Kind of like the poppies and the Wizard of Oz. They've stumbled into this, uh, this lethargy, this spiritual amnesia, this drugging that has caused them to forget about what really produces life and what really produces joy and what really... Uh, what it is that will bring them the thing that they want so much, which is comfort and peace and joy. It's not in these things in the world. It's only, only in Jesus. And so we hear these words and they're kind of harsh. We're like, wow, he just lit them up. But it's Jesus. It's the Jesus intervention. It's Jesus coming to these drugged out people saying, wake up. You need to wake up. Wake up. It's Jesus' mercy to them. It's Jesus' mercy to us. Okay. That's what's going on in the Laodicean Christian Fellowship megachurch. Now let's talk about the first Reformed church of Ephesus. Uh, If you go right down these steps, at the bottom of the steps here, there are portraits of uh, several generations of pastors who have who have served First Presbyterian Church. Uh, and it, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, we first visited this church when, when I had first left, I was in Bible college still, but I had realized that I was not going to be a megachurch pastor, uh, that my rock star skills were not transferable to being a pastor. Uh, in, <clears throat> in fact, we realized that I was going to end up being a confessional Presbyterian minister to me, and that was synonymous with space alien. I did not even know what that meant. And we came to visit this church about 10 years ago, and I saw 
all, I saw there's like 12 generations of pastors who have served over this church. And I was like, and that blew my mind because every other church we had ever been at was a church plant, which the pastor, the founding pastor started, grew it. When that pastor either quit or died or uh, had some sort of failure, that church died, and that was how it was. But this church has been here since 1869, and there was a stream of pastors, and it, it hit my mind, like, that's the difference. That's a big difference. A pastor is a link in the chain. A pastor is not the personality that, that drives and, and fuels the church. And this church had survived through all these different pastors. Now, why do I tell you this story? If you were to walk downstairs at uh, the First Reformed Church of Ephesus and looked at the portraits on the wall of the pastors who had been over that church, the first three were Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. That's pretty solid leadership. You can guarantee when it came to theology, when it came to piety, when it came to a theology of worship, when it came to an ecclesiology, when it came to an understanding of what the church is and how it functions in the world, those guys were on point. And Jesus commends them for that. He says, you got this down. False apostles, meaning people sent not from Jesus, had come and they saw right through them, called them out. There's a group called the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about them, but seems that they were a group of people that were trying. Their doctrine was that the Christian church could outwardly uh, compromise and participate in all of the pagan worship and cultural uh, values of the day, uh, and it didn't really mean anything. It was fine. You could, you could still hold a Christian faith, even though you still participated in all of those things. And they, knowing that that was wrong, saw through them, called them out. And yet, even though they had all that, and that's really good stuff. It's not bad. It's really good to seek to, uh, after theological precision and to know as deeply as we can what the Word of God says, what the Gospel is, what the church is, what worship is, what we're supposed to do. Those are all good things, and yet Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned they didn't just lose it. They didn't just misplace it somewhere. Uh, they left it. <clears throat> they abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There's a bit of a debate about what that means. Some people say they lost their love for Jesus. Um, the argument uh, against that is that the, the, the opposite of love for Jesus is idolatry. And so therefore, uh, we don't see idolatry in the Ephesian church. They must not have lost their love for Jesus. But then, that really depends on how narrowly you define idolatry. What if theological precision is idolatry? Uh, some people say that it was they had lost a sense of their love for other people that they'd lost their passion for evangelism and for mercy and justice in the world. And I think the answer is both. They lost their love for Jesus, which then necessarily results in a loss of love for people in the world and in the church. And so, you know, we ask that question, 
specifically, we're like, how could that possibly happen? How is it even possible to, be, to have the gospel down, to understand theology in its depths, to have a good theology of worship and the church, and at the very same time have abandoned the love of Jesus and the love of his people and the love for the world? Uh, Dennis Johnson, our friend Dennis Johnson, uh, former professor at Westminster, he wrote a commentary on Revelation, and he said this about the church of Ephesus. He said, an embattled church can turn inward in self-protection and suspicion. In other words, a church that's under that kind of pressure, pressure from heresy, can become so focused on defeating that heresy so focused on winning that it can lose sight of why it's trying to win. It can lose sight about what the fight's even about. And the reality is, it takes a a giant amount, it takes a good amount of spiritual maturity to handle truth. Without spiritual maturity, truth becomes weaponized And it's just one more thing that we can use against other people to show that we're better than you. Spiritual pride. Uh, Another professor, former president, Godfrey, uh, Bill Godfrey said, or uh, Robert Godfrey said, he said, the great sin of the Reformed Church is turning worship into a classroom, the sermon into a lecture. And when we do that, the result is we turn Knowledge into maturity. But knowledge is not maturity. Never in the Bible is knowledge presented as maturity. Love is presented as maturity. Sometimes it blows my mind when I think about the history of the church and uh, and, and, uh, and outpourings of the Holy Spirit, revivals, great moments in the church where people are coming to faith in in evangelistic fervor. uh, And it's all across the board. All these different traditions have a part in that. All of them basically orthodox and they're believing, but in their secondary issues, wildly across the board. And and it just blows my mind sometimes to think about who God has used throughout history to bring about revival and and reformation in the church. And why why do I have trouble with that? Because I'm I'm betraying myself. I'm betraying myself that I think theological precision is the most necessary thing in evangelism. Apparently, God doesn't think so. It's important, yeah. Why is that? It's because I love theology. That's how I'm wired. People that are wired like that tend to come together, and we congregate, we all get together, uh, and before long, we all start convincing ourselves we're better than those guys. We got it down. We know this. This is why we're better. And spiritual pride, spiritual immaturity kicks in. And before you know it, that theology, what is supposed to lead us into the beauty of Jesus and cultivate and kindle in our hearts a love for him and what he's done for us, that is so great. It just starts spilling out over us, over us and on the church and on the world and on the people that he's called us to serve. That's the point of theology. Um, 
That's the point. But we've lost that. We lost it. We lose it. We lose it in immaturity and spiritual pride that uses all of that theology as a way to say that we are better than those guys. And the big problem from that is it creates, just like Laodicea, a total loss of witness in the world. Why? Not because we don't have the truth, but because we've become so alienated from the world. We've become so arrogant. Uh, we've become so suspicious that we end up hating the world and hating the church that God loves. I think the most controversial thing I said last year was that there are two kinds of churches that the devil is fine with. One, giant churches that have lost the gospel and small churches that have the gospel and have become irrelevant because they are unable to reach the culture that God has placed them in. Man, did I make people mad with that. Where did I get that from? Did I make that up? No, I got it from right here. You see, the book of these seven letters are organized by John in, what's in, a, in, a, in a form called a chiasm, meaning that ancient writers would put like ideas uh, in their arguments uh, first and last, and then, the, then they would also put other like ideas second and, and, and next to each other, and then other like ideas in the center, and the main point right in the middle. And we can see that real easy in the next letters, both Smyrna and Philadelphia. The second uh, and the sixth churches in the letters are both churches under heavy persecution that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. He commends them. Those two go together. So what is it that the first church, Ephesus, and the last church, Laodicea, have in common? They have both lost their witness to the world. For very different reasons, but that's the outcome. Completely lost their witness to the world. And that, even if we do everything else really good, that's the mission. If I'm hired, you know, to be a janitor, and I say, but Lord, I'm a fantastic tap dancer, it doesn't really matter. I'm supposed to be a janitor. Isn't it enough to worship? Isn't it enough to care for God's people? Man, those are so important. When a church loses those things, it falls off the ditch in the opposite direction. But the short answer is, from Jesus, no. That's not enough. Our call is to do that so we cultivate a love for Jesus that overflows into a love for the world and his church. And when we find that love missing, there's something seriously wrong. And it's so wrong, there are only two churches in this list that Jesus says, I'm going to come and snuff you out. Remove your witness from the world. Ephesus, because it's become so toxic. And Laodicea, because it's become so indistinguishable from the world, it's worthless. 
Wow. Those are tough words. That's some cancer surgery right there. That's some hard diagnosis, right? It's such a, it's such a delicate and difficult balance to be in the world and not of it. When Jesus gives us that charge, it's, it's not a small thing. It's not an easy thing. And the point is that we can't do that in our own power, whether we're relying on our wealth, our money, our programs, our prosperity, or whether we're relying on our intellect, our theological precision, our ecclesiology. We can't rely on anything other than the power that Jesus gives us. We can't rely on anything other than the Spirit. And honestly, when I started to prep this sermon, I thought I was going to put up Laodiceas, the bad guys, the foil, and get everybody to go, yeah, they suck. (laughs) And then go to Ephesus and be like, "Ah, ta-da, same outcome. Um, But wow, was I convicted that just, you know, it's not that the, the seven letters to the churches, real problems that those churches faced, real problems that we face, And we can see a little bit of all of them in us. We become apathetic because of our wealth and prosperity. The church is not first for most in the American church. Uh, We've also taken theological precision and made it um, maturity. And it's not. And we've alienated ourselves from the world and from the church that we have been called to serve. But the good news is that this is not a condemnation of the churches. How about that? Let's remember that real quick. This is not a condemnation of the churches. Uh, You know, Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Jesus, this is not a condemnation, this is a diagnosis. This is Jesus, the great physician who loves us, saying, here's the cancer. Here's what it looks like. Let's fix it. Let's heal you. How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is speaking to us in this perfect mixture of truth and grace? Because we know that Jesus is speaking to those he loves. How do we know that? A lot of reasons. Number one, you know what Jesus says to those he does not love? You know what Jesus says to false churches? to people that are not in, the, in, in him? Nothing. Silence. Jesus speaking to Herod. Jesus speaking to the high priests. Silence. There's nothing to say. The fact that he's speaking to us lets us know that we are those that he loves and he promises us that all the Father gives him he will come to him and whoever comes to him he will never cast out. Those he loves, he disciplines. He loves his church. Listen to what he says. Verse 19, maybe the most important thing he says in this passage, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He says it straight up. I'm saying this to you because I love you. I purchased you with my blood. I've given you my spirit. You have eternal life. You are partakers in the kingdom. You are sharing in the divine nature. 
You belong to me, and that's not going to change. We need to be encouraged by this. Jesus is speaking hard words to us because he wants us to flourish. He wants us to remember that when we separate from him and move on to any other thing, it's going to end up poorly. He wants us to be alive and burning with the Spirit as a light to the world. And listen, here's the main point. This is what he, listen to what he says. This is what he says to the Laodicean church, but it, it, it's applicable to everybody. This is the, the harsh, other than I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, he says, he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, right? That sounds really bad. Where does he get that from? Uh, here's where he gets that from, from the parable of the banquet in Luke 14. It's a story about the great king. He invites all these rich and prosperous people to come to the banquet, and everybody has some silly excuse uh, from the world as why they can't make it and why they're not going to show up. And so the servant comes to the great king and tells him that, and the great king says, uh, well, then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He did that on purpose. He brought us in. I mean, that's who we are. I mean, it's hard to kind of take that, but in this life, in a fallen world, in fallen bodies, we are and will remain wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and weak. And the, what we have to have more than anything is Jesus' power. And that's what he's saying to these churches. He's saying, he's saying man, you've got all these ideas about what's going to give you what you want, the comfort that you want, the power that you want, um, the joy that you want, but all those things are going to make you wither on the vine because they don't have that. Only Jesus has that. Jesus is reminding us that we are in constant dependence upon him and that his power is constantly readily available to us, uh, that he is constantly with us. And that the goal of us, the goal for us, and for his love for us, is, and the goal of all this is to produce in us such a deep love for Jesus uh, that it just naturally creates in us a deep love for the world and for the church around us. And when that happens, Jesus can do remarkable things through us in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the beauty of your word. We know that you love us enough to tell us hard things, Lord. And Lord, God, save us from save us from thinking that we have to be perfect and presentable before you so that we can hear uh, our true condition and knowing that you love us. When you look at us, you look at us through the righteousness of Jesus. We have those white robes. You see us as righteous and perfect and just because of what Christ has done for us. And in that, you can show us what's in ourselves. Not because you despise us, but because you love us and you want us to grow. 
So Lord, we, we confess. We have oftentimes put the church and put the love for you and put the gospel second or third or fourth. And we confess that we have mistaken theological precision and knowledge for spiritual maturity. Uh, and it has caused us to alienate ourselves from the world and the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to love you so much that we would love the people that you've called us to be ministers and witnesses to. And we pray that you would do remarkable things through us.